Ileana's an embroiderer. She creates beautiful, expressive images that explore queerness, the natural world, and more. But that creative part, designing and drawing the image, only takes about two hours. What she really looks forward to is the months of minutiae after that. Yeah, there's just something about hours and hours of tedium that I just love. Also, I'm really proud of it when it's done because that's not valued in our culture. We don't value someone sitting alone in their living room for years working on tiny stitches. It doesn't really make sense. And it makes me so happy. And I just do it because it makes me happy. This week on Interstates, a conversation with Ileana Haberman about embroidery, queerness, and mental health. And stay tuned after that. We're talking with IU Cinema director Alicia Cosma about the best place to go watch movies outside. That's all coming up right after this. Welcome to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. This is part one of a series I'm doing on textile politics. I'm stealing that name from a class that was taught at Indiana University in the fall of 2021. I'll be talking with the person who created that class in a few weeks. But I want to kick the series off with a conversation about queer embroidery with a friend of mine, Ileana Haberman. After two years of COVID and the isolation that so many people have had to endure, although not everyone's been able to isolate, let's remember that, finding ways to take care of ourselves, to keep from going crazy, but also to be more tender toward ourselves. The importance of that is ever more apparent. Turns out, as my guest today will help us understand, embroidery is one way to do that. Embroidery has traditionally been the domain of women, at least in recent centuries in the West. In Europe, upper-class young women learned decorative embroidery. Working-class women learned to embroider, too, especially if they were responsible for household linens. It was about mending cloth and also labeling bed linens, napkins, tablecloths. It was a marketable skill. They had to be accurate and fast, and working-class women would use the need to embroider as a way to get together with each other, which also made embroidering a political act. It was a chance for women to share their stories and speak their minds away from men and employers. And that's just the social side. The products could be political, too, as a way for women who never learned to read to tell their stories. My guest today, Ileana Haberman, brings another kind of feminist and queer angle to embroidery. Embroidery is a way to ornament cloth. That cloth often covers up the body, sometimes for warmth, sometimes modesty. The images Ileana stitches turn that covering up on its head. Because if you wore Ileana's images, you would often be wearing nude bodies. She's got lots of nude bodies. Her own body, actually. In bedrooms, gardens, in creeks, in trees, in dreams. It's embroidery as autobiography, in a way, although you won't get her life story just through the images. She also stitches quilts, like pictures with quilts in them, and leaves and pine cones and spring ephemerals. I'm excited to talk with Bloomington artist Ileana Haberman today about stitching, queerness, patterns, and practices of tenderness. Ileana, welcome to Interstates. Thank you. That's very moving to hear. <laughs> Maybe I should have you reflect myself back on myself more often. <laughs> so I wonder if we could just start with you talking about how you got into embroidering. Yeah, sure. I've been embroidering basically my whole life. My mom would be very upset if I didn't mention that she taught me when I was four. Um, but it is part of my maternal line. Everyone in my family stitches or quilts or whatever. So it is a tradition, I suppose. But then when I was finished with college and kind of lost and also newly exploring my queer identity, I just thought, what if I make someone naked with stitch? Wouldn't that be hilarious? So that's where it started, and it was kind of just a novelty at that time, and now it's much more rooted in mental health, and I, I mean, it's just, it's grown into such a much bigger part of my life than just making my myself laugh. One of the things I love about the images is that the images themselves aren't funny, per se, but there is sort of like a cheekiness to the whole idea, you know? <laughs> and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the idea and sort of what it means to be doing, especially the, the nude bodies as an embroiderer. Yeah, first it was just something that made me laugh and seemed really subversive. And also at that time, there was not a lot of nude embroidery happening. It's much more common now. 
but this was 15 years ago. And so it was kind of, I had never seen it before. And I noticed something happening, which was that the more that I used my own body, the more I viewed my body differently in ways that felt really exciting because I am prone to societal norms on bodies and can dive into some hateful territory for myself there. And the more that I drew pictures or took photos or whatever it was that I was working with, the more I would shift the way that I started looking at my own body and think, oh, that curve is really interesting. That fold is really beautiful. This dimple is really important here. So that got more and more exciting as I realized that like, I could kind of hack the way that the world tells me to look at myself. So it's mixing a way to really celebrate this one body that I have to experience this one life and also place it in a moment that I want to slow down in. Most of the embroideries that I do will spark when I realize that I'm re-remembering a moment or something feels really important and I just want to sit with it for a while. And I will literally sit with it for months because these embroideries can take hundreds of hours to finish. So I really think that's kind of funny that not only am I saying this moment's important, let's slow down in this moment, but I'm literally slowing myself down by sitting and doing these minuscule stitches hours and hours and hours. One thing I'm curious about related to all that is uh, how doing the art as you were trying to figure out being a queer human at the same time, did doing the art help at all? Mm, well, you know, I am getting older and the world has changed a lot in the last 15, 20 years. And I think probably I was looking for some representation I wasn't seeing out in the world. And so I don't really embroider other people. It's almost always just me. That feels like I, I know how I feel. I don't know how other people feel. So I don't really embroider other people. But for me to have an embroidery that I know is about falling in love with someone when I was not seeing people with bodies, specifically like long hair, you know, not a lot of femme queer bodies experiencing those things. That is something I really did not see and was probably confusing to me as a young queer person who feels a lot of assumptions are made about me. I was probably making artwork that I wished I had been seeing. It's been a little while now, 15, 20 years since you started doing this. I'm curious if it's also over that time made you look at your body differently and whether thinking about like your body changing over time has been a part of it. I mean, I would love to say that this practice has revolutionized the way that I feel in in my skin, but that's not true. There are moments. So when I'm working on a piece, I can get into like a really loving and exciting space, but it's not like doing this for 15 years has made me just <laughs> some kind of uh elevated human of any type. You know, the thing with embroidery truly is that you have to pull out lines and you have to choose which lines you're going to use and which lines you're not. So now that I think about it, I'm not sure. Aside from the skill, because the skill has definitely changed in 15 years, but I'm not sure that uh, you would be able to tell that my body is aging based on embroidery, which maybe is a, some way that I'm choosing some denial about how things are changing. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> huh. I'll have to ask you again in 15 yeah, years. Yeah, please ask me again in 15 years, and we'll see if I still have the same answer. <laughs> so it hasn't really made you think about time necessarily. I just took a lace-making class because I like the idea of making lace elements which take forever and then putting them in embroidery so that you have like three months of embroidery and a month of lace and you put it all together and then no one has any idea that it's a 200 hour project but I do that's what makes my brain feel good so I guess that's a different relationship to time also mm. not like historical time of life but how long it takes and how like you're into that Oh, it's my favorite. So tell me more about that. Um, I love detailed, intricate work. 
there is something that happens in my brain that just calms down when I have a minute task and I have to do it 6,000 times. So if I have something like a chain stitch for 18 hours, <laughs> um, I can be in the moment and I can relax and I can, the part of my brain that doesn't know how to sit still is busy. And then the parts of my brain that maybe need a little more attention or I need to process some feelings or figure out what my feelings are, that part can come out because the, the busy part is quieted down with a task. Um, I mean, also creating art is just so fun. So there is a period of time, maybe like two hours, where I will be taking photos and making drawings and sketching out what I want it to look like. And that's really fulfilling, but it only lasts two hours. And then I have months of the minutia, and that's the part that just keeps me a little more even, gives me an opportunity to really figure out what I'm, what I'm feeling. Yeah, there's just something about hours and hours of tedium that I just love. Also, I'm really proud of it when it's done because that's not valued in our culture. We don't, we don't value someone sitting alone in their living room for years working on tiny stitches. It doesn't really make sense and it makes me so happy and I just do it because it makes me happy. And I love that that can be a priority in my life. I want to just emphasize that I, having seen your art over the years, certainly haven't known how long it takes. <laughs> and I think that there's like, you're sort of talking about a therapeutic aspect to it as well. But it also, I think, has really great artistic value. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's really smart, thoughtful work. But I wanted to back up a little bit more. Can you just talk through the whole process? Okay. So you brought some work in. Brought some. And maybe pick. you could start by describing the piece and then yes. talk me through the whole process. Okay, so this is from my latest series that I made thinking. <laughs> I started it in July and I finished it in August. And I thought this will be a nice way to wrap up the pandemic, which is clearly not what happened. So I do feel a little bit strange being like, I made this in the pandemic and that's done. <laughs> because that's yeah. not real. I couldn't embroider in the beginning of the pandemic because I was too stressed out and really, really scared and anxious all the time. I finally started, and then I was much healthier. <laughs> My brain was much healthier once I started actually embroidering. So this is from that series. We have a nude body. It is mine. Reclining and she is looking into her hands, which are held out in front of her. And then the background is hundreds of pebbles with these white lines. And the white lines are sunlight through the water. This moment happened in the summer of 2020. And I was, I was with my parents, who I was not potting with. I was social distancing from my parents, and I was with my sister's kids, who I was not social distancing with, and I was assisting in them spending time together. And so we went to a creek, and we were just walking through the creek barefoot playing. And the reason this moment felt so important is that inherently, because we were in the creek, we weren't thinking about social distancing. We were just running around looking at things in the creek. For a brief moment, I got a break from the panic and from trying to protect my older parents. And I just didn't have to think about who's close to who and who's breathing on who. And I just didn't think about any of it. I just got to be present in the moment in a way that I hadn't been able to be in a long time. And so that felt important. So I was thinking about that a lot. And I kept thinking about the way that the sunlight looked through the water and just how mesmerizing it is. And it just was really beautiful moment of being just being so I took some photos for the body and then I painted probably about 10 layers of paint as a background and then I embroidered these pebbles and there are hundreds of them I don't really know what I was thinking because and not only did I embroider them once, then I went over each line again, and then I embroidered in between every single line. This took months. I really, 
sometimes I wonder why I make the choices I make, but I'm really pleased with it in the end. And then the white, um, there's white sunlight on top to give kind of a dappled look. Yeah, so I really like this one. It makes me remember that you kind of have to just let go sometimes and just be present. And yeah, so that's the process is we've got a body, we've got a painted background, we've got tons of embroidery. I think I then painted it again a few times because it wasn't enough. I just, you know, if I can add something, I'll add it. And then over the years, has it been sort of a steady progress of making things ever more complicated? Absolutely. Yes. No, I won't do, I won't do, I won't do simple anymore. <laughs> um, like here's one that's also from the pandemic okay. series. And this is one of the first ones before and I... Let's just also say for, you know, for people who are listening, this is, it's a little bigger than 12 by 12, 14 by 14? I think it's 12 by 12, but 12 the frame 12? makes it a little bigger. The frame makes it look, and it's a wooden frame. Mm-hmm. Just, it's a square, just yeah. sort of, so people can sort of yeah. picture and also hear the pieces as yeah, they're moving around. Yeah, a little banging around a bit. This one was before I started to feel moments of ease, <laughs> which I think is funny because when you look at it, I don't, she looks calm. She looks relaxed, but I know that she's not. And this is, I made this, there's a pieced quilt as a background with really small pieces, freeform quilting, um, which is in the tradition of crazy quilting. So the idea is that it's just really fragmented. The body is relaxed, but then the background is, I don't think that's calm. So there's the body in the center. She's lying there resting, eyes closed, or lying there with eyes closed at least, <laughs> whether she's feeling restful or not. But then there's she's surrounded by this crazy quilt, mm-hmm. which has these all these different shapes going on, a lot of triangles, but not in a steady way. Mm-mm. And the quilt aspect sort of, to me at least, makes it automatically feel a little bit more calm because there's a sense mm-hmm. of comfort with the quilts. Mm-hmm. And then in the tradition of crazy quilts, if you look, there's all these beautiful old like Victorian velvets. And then there's this feather stitches used on all the seams. But to me, it almost looks like centipedes. <laughs> it doesn't feel calm to me. I think it's funny because people say it looks calm, but she just looks so unhappy to me because hmm. I was. Yeah. This was the solution. But my point bringing this up is that I was like, what if I use the tiniest pieces possible to make a quilt and then quilt it with a very detailed stitch that I didn't need to do, but I did it because it was something extra I could do that would take another week or so. Probably not a week, but I just love adding stuff. I just, if I can spend another few hours and make it complicated, I will. And that does feel political too, like in this capitalist society to say, I'm probably not going to make money on this. It's not about that. So why not just do what feels good? And it feels really good. <laughs> so, If you're just joining us, we're talking with Bloomington artist Ileana Haberman about embroidery, mental health, and the appeal of making stitches more complicated than necessary. This is Interstates. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're talking with Bloomington artist Ileana Haberman about how her relationship to embroidery changed during the pandemic, about how complicated stitches are useful for mental health, and about quilts. So what are crazy quilts? A crazy quilt would be a quilt that is freeform. It's not a pattern. You're just sewing pieces together. You can use scraps as you have them. And a lot of them are heavily embroidered, if you look up old ones. It's not the best name. It could be renamed. But that is what it's called. And freeform embroidery is just fun. It's so fun. Or free, sorry, freeform quilting is so fun. Because mm. you just don't know what is going to happen and trying to get it to fit in this perfect shape. In looking back over your work in the past couple days leading up to this, one of the things that I've really enjoyed the most actually is seeing the quilts in the embroideries Mm. because I like the playfulness of it's this stitching of a stitched thing (laughs) but you're not actually stitching the quilt you're just stitching an Mm. image of the quilt Mm -hmm. and we're seeing it in 
3D in a, in a way because we're seeing the textures and the folds as it lays over someone's body or whatever. It's not just like the flat image of the quilt. I guess I just wanted to hear more about your relationship with quilts. Well, quilts are another thing that are very traditional in my family. My grandma made them. My aunt is a curator at a quilt museum. This is definitely part of my matrilineal line. I love quilts. I will always go back to quilts. I love patterns. I love triangles so much. We could talk for hours about how much I love triangles. So so quilting has a lot of triangles. Um, repetitive triangles just do something to my brain. I don't know what it is. I love them. Also, there is such a rich tradition of quilts. I only know mostly about American quilting, but there are so many patterns and they all have names. And so you can assign meaning. And I'm sure other people have assigned very different meanings than what I have. But I did a whole series a few years ago of all quilt themed embroideries. And it was not a happy series. I was going through a horrible time in my life. And so I just assigned all these meanings to quilts. And that was a time when I was a little more secretive about my private life. And so I didn't want everyone to know what the quilt meanings I assigned were. And so I had a show and I did not I did not tell people what the meaning was, but it was a way for me to put secrets in. You know, choose a quilt pattern that I knew was referencing something but then I didn't have to be vulnerable. And so that's how, that's so I, I've done a lot of quilts. Did it feel vulnerable anyway? It was awful. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was awful. And like some people kind of knew what was going on and you know could kind of tell, but I needed that boundary cuz I do like showing them and and I do like letting people know what I'm doing when I say no, I'm not going to hang out. I'm too busy. I mean, I'm staying home embroidering a quilt. So it is nice to like let my community come and see art. That does that does feel fun, but at that time I was not prepared to let anyone know how I was feeling so so embedding secrets. Also, I just think it's fun. If you can add again, I'll add layers of stitching, but if you can add layers of meaning as well, why not? Why not? What are some examples of quilts with different kinds of layers of meaning? Well, so my all-time favorite quilt pattern is called Wandering Geese. It's just triangles. It's repetitive triangles over and over. It's the most beautiful quilt I have. Oh, What okay. does it look like? So it's isosceles triangles with their hypotenuse on the bottom again and again and again. So it's just rows of triangles. And sometimes you can flip some on their head to make them more interesting. But it's just rows of triangles. It's pretty simple. I don't have a lot of skill with quilting. I I like to do it, but I have never really put that much time into learning how to do more intricate patterns. So it's it's a pretty accessible pattern. But it's just rows of triangles. So wandering geese, you can take a couple different ways. I think I've put it in comics that I've done. I will just think like there's there's the Mary Oliver poem about geese, wild geese. Wild geese, yeah. Um, so sometimes if I want to reference that, but I don't actually want to reference it, I'll put in a wandering geese quilt pattern. And I know I'm referencing Mary Oliver, even if no one else does, which is good enough for me. But I've also used it to imply infidelity because of the wandering aspect. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was that was when I used it at that time. It was about infidelity. Now I've reclaimed it because I will always love that pattern. So now it's more of a Mary Oliver meaning. There's also one called Broken Dishes, which maybe you can imagine ways in which you can use a pattern called Broken Dishes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just like to assign meaning to things and then use them. And quilts are such rich patterns. And repet repetition. Repetition is so delightful. Why? Because you don't have to think about it. You're just doing it. You're just doing it. It's such a break. It's a break from the spiraling of having to come up with something or, you know, you can get out of the need to produce something new all the time and you're just making a triangle over and over and over and over. And it just gives your brain a break. I'm sure there's brilliant psychologists who can explain why this feels so good. I just know it feels really good. When did you realize that? Oh, I have no idea. 
I mean, probably when it was, it started to be pointed out to me at some time that if I wasn't embroidering regularly, I was a little bit of a jerk. Um, And I would start to feel kind of frantic and get a little controlling in the ways that when things feel out of out of my hands, I can get a little bit controlling. Um, So there have been times in my life where people have said, you need to go embroider. So I did start noticing there was a correlation between like feeling like I was a little bit out of control and maybe not being my best self and doing this. So I can easily go like in retrospect, I can look back over the last 15 years and say like, oh, I wasn't embroidering during that period. And, you know, it's not like not embroidering creates mental unrest, but there are times when I just can't do it. And that's really indicative. So now I know if I haven't been making things for a little while, I need to pay attention because something's not right. Mm. So that's that's very useful. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, too, about how making art is a thing that, that you have control over. Yeah. I mean, our art never comes out like we want it to. No. I don't know about you, but... Uh, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little more elevated than that. <laughs> no, also, the what I think is funny is that I can be a kind of chaotic person. Like, when I think on what my art studio looks like right now, it's pretty embarrassingly trashed. And it does bother me, but I don't fix it very often. But then the finished product is so tidy and clean and crisp. And there is a whole thing in embroidery about the backs of your embroideries. They, the backs are supposed to look as tidy as the fronts. That is not my world. I don't care about that. I never have. I remember the first time my brother-in-law saw an embroiderer of mine. He flipped it over to look at the back because his mom is an embroiderer, and he knows the back's supposed to look like the front. And he was like, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, my world is a little bit chaotic, and and that's fine with me. And I think there's a lot of creativity in chaos. So I don't mind that. But there is something really nice about a finished piece that, like, Everything is in its place. It's very tidy. And I feel a little bit like I've tricked people into thinking that I'm also tidy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. I just needed this to get there. I also would love to hear about the culture of embroidery. Well, embroiderers come from everywhere. There are people from all walks of life embroidering. It's very affordable, so it's also very accessible, which I think is great. And there's kits. There's, so any, almost anyone can embroider if they want to. It's not technically difficult. So you get everybody, which means sometimes you get some not-so-lovely things. So, for example, there is an embroiderer that came out as really, really transphobic a couple of years ago, and she... She's very talented, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, And she has a large following because she's very talented. And that was really upsetting. It's not shocking because, again, everyone everyone can embroider, so you will get all thoughts present in embroidering. But um, I think maybe because... Embroidery is also like this craft that has been kind of reclaimed in a way. People are fighting for embroidery to be recognized as art, and it is happening. There are people who there are people whose um, art has been in galleries. I've shown in a lot of places. There's there's plenty of. It is starting to be recognized more and more. So there are some really cool pockets of embroidery where there are a lot of queer and trans embroiderers doing really, really cool stuff. Yeah, you get anybody. But the the nice thing, the it was awful when she came out with her transphobic stuff, and she has not stopped. It continues. But it did bring together a lot of people making really neat stuff. And so, I, I you know, I'm connected to other queer embroiderers and people who are making really subversive, beautiful really political, really inspiring art. Yeah. There's also plenty of people who, like my grandmother, are embroidering pigs on dish towels. You know, you get everything. Yeah. But it's still it's still so new. Like, you know, I feel like there's this whole argument of art versus craft. 
And I'm kind of uninterested in that argument and also totally arguing with myself about that all the time. Like, I make my embroideries as a square. I like that. But it's also to trick your brain into thinking of it as art, not craft. If it was on a hoop, I think you would think craft. So I put it on a square so that you think art on the wall. So that's that's a game I'm playing, even though I don't really, I just told you I'm not interested. <laughs> I am still doing it. So there's a lot of really amazing embroidery. And in, in all kinds of, I mean, you get all kinds of different styles. It's a huge medium. It's a humongous medium. There are thousands of people doing thousands of different styles in so many different ways, which is so exciting. I feel like every day I find someone new on Instagram doing something incredible that I'd never even thought of. Maybe that's true with other mediums. This is just the one I pay attention to. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something, there's something else there. The art versus craft thing, which I am curious, has that tension increased in the past couple decades, or has that always been there? My guess is that it's always been there, and I think actually it's not art versus craft. It's real, quote, male-dominated art versus Mm -hmm. the other arts, which are more practical. I mean, yes, my art is in a frame to go on a wall, but... Traditionally speaking, this is for clothing and linens. It's practical, same as weaving and knitting. All these things are practical, so they're women's work, so we don't care about them. And that's that's really what that conversation is about. Also accessibility. Oil paints are expensive. I don't know how to use them. Embroidery throughout floss is 30 cents, and I know how to use it because my grandma taught me. The, the, there's accessibility and gender in, in that. It's probably always been there. I don't know if embroiderers have been fighting you know, when I came in, it was, it felt new 15 years, 15, 20 years ago. It felt new. Like embroidery hadn't stepped out of towels into, onto the wall yet. And that's definitely not true. There's, I'm sure there's been people doing that for a long time, but it wasn't remotely mainstream and it really is now. So that's probably a louder argument, but it's always been there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like the internet's been part of that too? For sure. For sure. It was Flickr in the early days. Oh, yeah. I remember Flickr. Yeah. And then I guess then we jumped to Instagram. But I jumped really late. So there's tons of things I don't even know about. I'm not very good at technology, which is fine with me. I like a needle. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also technology, but this is true. This is true. Modern, modern (laughs) internet internet and electricity based technology. Just thinking about trying to recognize the needle as technology, just as the the craft is also an art. Yes, (laughs) this is true. This is true. Yeah. Was there a second thing you were going to ask? Well, you actually talked in, I think, a great way about the gender aspect already. But then also queer and trans representation in embroidery. Because I feel like you kind of brought that up. And is that a thing that's also been an important cultural thing? I would like to think so. I also need to leave room for the fact that I have a well-curated bubble of queer and trans embroiderers that I follow so what I'm seeing could be skewed. I would really like to hope that it's not. Um, that's what I see. And my world is just beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Again, because everyone can embroider and and there are a lot of people embroidering in the same style as my grandmother. I'm not, I'm not sure that there's like a larger movement, but I hope so. <laughs> There's definitely a growing, like, you know, I feel like there's websites like Subversive Stitch or Not Your Grandmother's Stitch or all these, these like, cheeky terms that are about how we've, we're taking something and, and then making it, like, a lot of swear words, a lot of nude bodies, a lot of, like, things grandma would not have been okay with. There's a delight in that right now that probably was not there 20 years ago, but... I'm not sure that it's specifically queer. I just curate my own life <laughs> to mostly only see queer embroiderers. Yeah. Yeah. What does your grandma think of your work? 
Well, Darlene died a few years back. I pushed the boundaries with my grandma for sure. I did come out to her, and that was not her favorite thing in the world for a little while. And then with enough time, she was very on board, which was which was really special and kind of surprising. I'm trying to remember what I used to show her. I also do lots of silly little embroideries, just like she used to do, of like chickens and things. So I probably showed her more of those. And she doesn't live. She didn't live in Indiana, so she did not come to any of my shows. But um, my grandma really believed in me creatively, and she was also a creative type. I would. I want to call her a crafter, and I feel really gross about that. Hmm. But uh, I think she would have called them crafts too. And I, I don't know that that came from a good place in her either. But she was always busy with making paintings and embroideries and quilts. And so she felt like we had a connection over that. I don't know that I ever showed her embroideries with nipples in them. I probably didn't. <laughs> but I know she was proud of that part of me regardless. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about how that connects you to your matrilineal line and heritage? Yeah, my mom really wants credit. And I really hesitate to give it to her because <laughs> I also feel like, yes, she put a needle in my hands and she she did teach me how to do it. And I would make patches for a tear in my jeans here and there. But I really came into this as an adult. And so it feels like there was some basic framework of this is how you make a quilt. You put these pieces together in this way or this is how you tie a knot and you do a chain stitch. Those basic understandings of these crafts were there but I really feel very clearly that I took it in a very different direction um, that is all my own but it, I mean no I can't I can't take that away this is definitely something that is part of my family but no one else in my family doesn't quite like me there's still very much in a traditional sense but you know yeah so it feels like in the way that embroidery is women's work I inherited it from the women of my family, and I have pushed it into a new place, but it will always have come from that. It's like the the inherited tradition of fiber plus my queer awakening in my early days, like, smooshed together into this strange way that honors both of them and are entirely mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to share that credit with anybody. <laughs> and then and then the mental health part feels also like, you know, as a child, I would escape to the basement where there was a craft table. And that was where I would go when things were not okay upstairs. So it's like, if you want credit, family... <laughs> I can give you credit, but we're also going to say I learned that art was good for my brain because things were not okay. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. What an excellent coping mechanism. But that feels like if we're going to do credit, I want to do full credit and say I did discover this as a child. I just didn't know what I was doing until I was much older. And then looking back, I can see that that craft table in that dark basement was really important for me. So maybe the last thing that I'll ask, and we've touched on this already, but just thinking about the period of time that we've been in, the pandemic and, and all, how has having this practice shaped your experience of the pandemic? I think when the pandemic first started, I was so anxious that I didn't want to consider that this was going to stick around. And so there was a moment when I realized it was okay to make art about these moments because they're not going anywhere in the way that I like to choose a moment and slow down on it. I really didn't want to do that with the pandemic because I wanted it to go away and starting to make the choice to actually stop in a pandemic feeling and make an embroidery about feeling anxious or feeling scared or feeling lonely or not safe, whatever it was. Those are feelings I typically don't make art about. Like if I look at the broad spectrum of what I've made art about, it's usually more positive feelings. And these were, are pretty negative. That's not universally true for my art, but it's, it's more of a value is that those are the moments I really want to sit with. So this was sitting with something very different. 
Uh, so I had to give myself permission to do that. And then I just got so much peace from it. And so, you know, I work with small children who are still unvaccinated and will might never be. And there's that has been really stressful. And we did we hung out outside all year and my toes were cold every day. I don't really know how I did that, but having something at the end of the day to just kind of calm my mind from, you know, constant fear around these little kids was an enormous blessing. I I don't know that I would have gotten through with I don't know how I would have kept my sanity or my job. I don't think I mean I didn't keep my sanity, but I I seem to be okay now. I feel like I'm doing pretty well. Uh, without that, that wouldn't have happened. So having something to just busy that part of me that was like, who's wearing a mask? Who's not wearing a mask? How close am I? Um, and then just sit down and make triangles, whatever it was. It, it always comes back to triangles. And also have there's something that happens when you have somewhere to put a feeling. So, you know, if I'm making an embroidery about pandemic anxiety and I'm feeling a lot of pandemic anxiety, you can put it in that piece and kind of let a little bit off yourself. So having like a vessel for your anxiety means you're not carrying so much yourself. And that was really important. Ileana Haberman, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. That was Bloomington artist Ileana Haberman. You can find her work at ilianahaberman.com or follow her on Instagram. We'll have links on our website. It's time for a short break. After that, some ideas for summer movie going in the Midwest. Stick around. It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Welcome back. It's summer. It's hot out. But the evenings are still nice. And maybe you're in the mood for a fun movie, but you don't feel like freezing in the cineplex. Well, don't worry. Our favorite cinema directors got you covered. Alicia Cosmo, welcome back. Thank you so much. Happy to be back. So what do you want to tell me about? Well, now that it's officially summer, I want to talk about one of my very favorite things about movie culture in the Midwest, which are drive-ins. Lovely. I love a drive-in. It always feels like you're going back in time a little bit when you watch a film at a drive-in. I remember when I was a little girl, my mother would tell me stories about going to the drive-in. And it was a drive-in where you paid by car, not by person. And so she and her friends would, like, shove a bunch of people in the trunk of the car just to get in (laughs) so more people could get in for less money. And it sounded so cool to me and is probably the only vaguely, like, rule-breaking thing my kindergarten teaching mother ever did. (laughs) And it always just made drive-ins sound even more romantic than normal. And I say that drive-ins are one of my favorite things about the Midwest. And it's not because drive-ins only exist in the Midwest, but... A third of every operating drive-in in the United States is in a Midwestern state. So there's a pretty good concentration, and we can thank Wide Open Land and Prairies for that. <laughs> but there's about 320 currently operating drive-ins, and a third of those are in Midwestern states. There are 20 in Indiana alone. So I wanted just to share a little bit about the history of drive-ins because it's super interesting to me. And so I'm hoping it's super interesting to other people, too. <laughs> So even though now we really associate drive-ins with, like, kind of wide open spaces and, as I said, these, like, you know, Midwestern lands, the gentleman who invented the drive-in, his name was Richard Hollingshead. He was from New Jersey. And so the first drive-in was ever was in New Jersey. So there is a story. It's most definitely, like, apocryphal. But it's that his mother was, like, a little too large to sit comfortably in the hardtop movie seats But she really loved going to the movies. So he tried to figure out a way to essentially bring the movies to her. And so he came up with this idea of this outdoor screen. You know, he put up like a sheet in the backyard and bought a projector and tried to figure out how it worked. And then he realized that everyone in the neighborhood kind of loved it and that he could turn this into a thing with cars and space and bigger screens. And the drive-in was born. So we opened up the first one in New Jersey in 1933. And what I like so much about drive-ins is that they kind of have this, not hidden, but maybe unknown legacy of accessibility. He saw drive-ins as theaters that could serve irregular movie-going audiences. So first he thought of families as an ideal demographic. 
Because for anyone who's ever gone to a movie theater with children or tried to go to a movie theater by leaving children at home, it's a process, right? And it can be super expensive. But if you had a drive-in that paid by the carload as opposed to the ticket, it was perfect for families. He also saw drive-ins as serving a large but pretty underrepresented audience group that had trouble navigating through dark theaters or traditional movie seats. So the elderly or people who use mobility devices like walkers or wheelchairs. But he also saw drive-ins as serving communities who didn't have regular access to movie theaters or even a variety of movie theaters. So in his patent application, he actually specified that drive-ins would serve rural audiences, that these could be theaters that you would put in places that didn't have traditional access to what would come to be called a hardtop theater. So a hardtop theater would be a theater with four walls or walls in general, (laughs) and everything else would be a drive-in. So eventually, stemming from this, there would be this kind of conventional wisdom that when you built a drive-in, you built it near working-class communities. And more often than not, those would be rural communities around the time that drive-ins were being made because the primary audience was seen as rural and blue-collar. So it really is serving a number of audience constituencies that, you know, big city um, movie palaces or even big city art houses were not thinking of. Yeah, that's fascinating. Makes me really love drive-ins a lot more. It, it feels uh, so much more inclusive, doesn't yeah. it? So if the demographic that or one of the demographics that he was really aiming for were rural and blue collar workers and families and these people who have issues navigating interior spaces for a variety of reasons, the audience group that would come to be most associated with drive-ins was definitely not those. <laughs> Right. When you think about the demographics of like a traditional drive-in, like what do you think about? I don't know. I guess I sort of think of like white middle-class teenagers. 100%. They became like bastions of like the new teenager class. Yeah. And in part, it's because— And they're not watching the movies when they're in the cars. Oh, no, definitely not. One of my second favorite thing about drive-ins is that their nickname in the 50s was Passion Pits. (laughs) Because like (laughs) no one's invested in— the drive-ins or the movies, everyone's invested in dark space that has no parents. Right, exactly. So drive-ins actually weren't super popular until after World War II. And they became popular when suburbs started happening. Of course. Right? Because car culture. Car culture. And also teenager culture. Right. The growth of the suburbs was this huge factor in the drive-in boom in the late 40s and the early 1950s. So post-World War II, you have the baby boom. People are moving to the suburbs. Teenagers become like a thing, a specific demographic for really the first time ever. There's a lot of financial prosperity. There's a huge rise in automobile sales. The gas rationing that was happening during the war is over. So teenagers have time, disposable income, cars, And as we said, a deep desire to hang out in the dark where there are no adults. And the answer to that is drive-ins. Yeah. So in 1941, there were fewer than 100 drive-ins. By 1948, there were 500. And in 1956, there were 5,000. 5,000 drive-ins. It's amazing. 5,000 passion pits. No wonder there was a baby boom. And... Of these 5,000 drive-ins, as I said, there's about 320 that are still operating in the U.S. There is one in almost every state. Not every state, but almost every state. There's 20 in Indiana, as I said, and there is one right here in Bloomington, the Starlight Drive-In. I went for the first time last night, and... Honestly, it's fantastic. It's everything that you could want from a drive-in. Their screen is huge. Their grass, very important for any drive-in, is super soft. (laughs) Nice. Super soft grass. I'm glad you checked that out. I did. You know, I had to because one of the nice things about the Starlight is that you can sit in your car and watch it. Or you can sit in front of your car. You can bring chairs. You can bring blankets, pillows. You can hang out. You don't have to stay inside your car, which makes it a little bit more of a social experience because you can talk to your neighbors if you want to. So you got to know if the grass is soft or not. Yeah. 
Um, and it makes sense that it's so great because it's been open for so long. They've been open since 1955. Wow. I know. 1955. Amazing. Yeah. They do single and they do double features. Very importantly, they do retro nights in the summer. So on Tuesdays, they show these nostalgic flashback films, and they're always free. One of the cool things that they do is that they often run community service events with some of their screenings. So one of their retro nights a couple weeks ago was also a food drive for two local pantries. Cool. Yeah. And why not? You have people there, goodwill, good movies, good food. They have tons of concessions. They play music before the movie is starting. It's just like kind of a big community party. It's super fun. And so I cannot recommend enough that people go and check it out. It's incredible. So hit up the Starlight Drive-In, everybody. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Alicia. Appreciate it. Yep. That was Indiana University Cinema Director Alicia Cosma here on Interstates from member-supported WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme music is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time to take a breath and listen to a place. You've been listening to Cicadas Over the Lost River at the Wesley Chapel Gulf, Orange County, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.